You're about to get a whole lot of scripture all at once, so get ready. It's a, it's a mouthful. This morning's reading is, is from the book of Genesis, and it's all of chapter 1 through uh, chapter 2, verse 3. <clears throat> In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let the dry ground appear, and it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds, and it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea, and every living thing with which the water teems, and that moves about in it according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, and said, be fruitful and increase in number, and fill the water in the seas, and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning. The fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image. In our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. 
Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. And you're going to hear me say that a lot this year because I have a lot of favorite passages in all of Scripture. And I can't just pick one. Um, and, and by the way, one of my hopes by, by having you all read the entire Bible this year is that, is that by the end of the year, you'll come away with a love of Scripture that you did not have before. So that you too will have you know, dozens of passages in here that you just think are your favorite and you couldn't pick one over the others if you had to. Um, it's a good thing to, to enjoy the scriptures that much because there is a lot of wisdom and goodness in here. And when you really, truly fall in love with them, you begin to appreciate them and understand them in a different light. So this is one of my favorite passages. I love it. I love the, the rhythm and the beauty of it. This, this wonderful sort of constant rhythm of God creating order out of chaos and calling light out of darkness. There's a lot of symmetry and beauty to it. But the thing is, at least within the United States, most Christians miss the richness and the depth of what's going on here. Because for the last 150 to 200 years or so, we have been sort of mired in this constant debate over whether or not this first chapter of Genesis is a, a literal retelling of the first moments of the universe or not. And this all began uh, during the Enlightenment age, like the 18th century, as, as the, the prominent thinkers in Western society started to challenge some of the things in the Bible and began to develop this ideology that if, if something is not um, 100% factually, historically true, if the story recorded is not exactly how it happened, then it can't be true or trustworthy at all. And what happened then is that the church, in response to that, let them win. Because they said, you know what, you're right. Therefore, every single word of this must be exactly what happened, exactly how it happened, must be 100% literally true. There can be no deviation. And they let them win. Because they conceded the point right from the beginning. And the interesting thing is, um, up prior, prior to the 18th century, no one cared if Genesis 1 was a literal retelling of the first moments of the universe. It didn't matter to anybody. And you will not find in the ancient writings of the Jewish rabbis who, who studied this and taught on it for thousands of years, you will not find anywhere anyone trying to claim that it's exactly how it happened. They'll just say, here's what we can learn from it. And frankly... If you go outside the United States and, and talk to Christians who are not from this country, um, none of them care if Genesis 1 is a literal retelling of the beginning of the universe. It doesn't matter to them. This is a uniquely American problem, and it blinds us to a lot of the important things that are going on in this chapter. But I do have to address that, so I, I will point out to you, um, 
you may have noticed this if you were following along with our Bible reading plan. You've read by now the first several chapters of Genesis. So you may have noticed that um, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, a separate creation story begins. That's where it starts to talk about Adam and Eve. And you may have picked up on, on the fact that, that that particular story contradicts the first chapter in almost every way. The order of creation is different. The method of creation is different. Um, the way, all, all of it is different. So if you want to believe in a literal creation story in Genesis, a story that tells literally the, the actual uh, recounting of the first moments of creation, you're going to have to pick which one you want because there's two of them and they don't line up. They can't both be literally true. So we've got a problem. And the most helpful thing for us to do is to go back and look at how the early Christians understood this, look at how the early Jewish communities understood it because this was, a, was their story too. And then look at how Christians in the rest of the world understand it. And the, and the interesting thing about this, by the way, as you go through the Bible, you need to understand that there are many different types of literature preserved in here. And there are history books. First um, and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Chronicles are history books. In fact, Genesis beginning in chapter 12 with the story of Abraham, from that point on we've got history about a real person and his real family who really did the things that are being recorded. And then there are uh, books of poetry like the Psalms and most of the prophets wrote in poetry, not in prose. I don't know why. I think prose works better, but they did what they did. Then there are letters in the New Testament. There are the Gospels, which are eyewitness accounts of certain events. There are apocalypses, because contrary to modern belief, an apocalypse is not an event. An apocalypse is a genre of... That better? You've got the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation, which are apocalypses. And understanding what that means is crucial for how we understand how to interpret those particular books. And we'll get to that when I preach on them. So Genesis 1... Ancient readers and ancient listeners would have understood right from the get-go because of how it's structured and how it's written that it's not a history. It's a cosmology. A cosmology is a story that is intended to explain the purpose and function of creation. That's all it does. It's not recording events. It is explaining a purpose. So, Right? God creates the, the lights to rule the day and the night. He gives us the sun and the moon. Why? So that we can tell which day is which and measure the times and the years and the seasons. But you know what else is important is that in the ancient world, almost everyone else thought that the sun and the moon were gods. And right here in the beginning, the Bible says, nope, they're just lights. Nothing important. You can't worship them. They're here to help you because I, God, made them. Likewise, he goes in when he creates all of the plants and the animals. And by the way, do you notice that the uh, plants, the animals, the birds, the fish, they're created not by God, but by the earth. God says, let the earth bring forth vegetation. Let the earth bring forth livestock. doesn't do that with humans. Already there are distinctions being made so that God can emphasize the difference that humans have versus the rest of creation. But you notice he also, in all of these things, creates in them the ability to reproduce themselves so God doesn't have to remake every tree individually. God can put them there and the tree will reproduce itself. And its purpose is to multiply and to spread and cover the face of the earth. And the plants are there to feed the rest of creation. He gives a purpose to everything. So they would have understood right off the bat that this is a cosmology. It's explaining the purpose of creation. And they didn't care if it was a literal retelling of history because to them, that didn't matter. They weren't all that interested in exactly how creation came to exist. They were interested in the question of why. 
And this right there actually solves this ongoing debate in our culture because the point of, of this book is not ever to explain how, it's to explain why. Science can never debunk religion because science can never explain why. It just says religion can't debunk science because religion can't explain how. They are not one and the same thing. They are different things addressing different questions. And when we miss out on that, we miss something important because the other thing that ancient readers would have instantly grasped when they read the beginning of Genesis is this. They would have noticed right off the bat that what they were reading was a story about the building of a temple. It's perfectly clear the way it's structured and the key to understanding that is that the very last thing that God does in creation is he puts his image in the temple. That's what you do when you build a temple to a God. You build the outside, you make it really pretty, you give everything its form and function, and then the last thing you do before your God comes and rests in the temple is you put an image of them there so that the worshipers who come can look at the God they're supposed to worship and, and can pray to that image, and that image will then convey their prayers to their God. It's very, very intentional about setting this up so that people will understand God is constructing a place to be his temple and that we are his image within it. Which means we have to then spend a lot of time figuring out what it means for us to be the image of God in the midst of his creation. Because too often we, we sort of uh, trivialize this idea that we're made in the image of God. We, we, we treat it as if the only thing it means is that we're, we're special. God likes us. Treat everyone with dignity because they bear the image of God. All of which is true. But it is a small, small part of the whole. Being made in the image of God means that we are created for the purpose of reflecting God's wise stewardship into his creation and gathering up the praises of all creation and reflecting it back to God. We're supposed to work like a mirror at an angle, with reflecting God's wisdom into his creation and reflecting the love and praise of all creation back to God. We are meant to be the conduit through which God connects to the created good. We are meant to be individually, each one of us, the point where heaven and earth meet. That's why we exist. It's literally our job. And, and see... This, this right here is why sin is so destructive. It's why it's a problem. We can't reduce this just to a, a moral code that we have to uphold or be punished by. It's not about that. It's about actually fulfilling our purpose as God's image bearers in the midst of his creation. And, and a huge amount of Christian theology flows from this point. A lot of what we believe, we believe because we understand that we are made in the image of God and that gives us a specific purpose in this life. It has profound implications for how we're supposed to live, how we're supposed to interact with people. Even, even Jesus recognizes this point, by the way, because there's a point in the Gospels and the Pharisees approach him and they ask him about some of the laws that Moses gave them because they, they realize he's teaching things that don't always line up with the laws of the Old Testament. And Jesus' response is, Moses gave you those laws because of the hardness of your heart. He gave you those laws because he recognized you were going to have trouble actually living up to God's standards. But from the beginning, it was not so. The question is about divorce. And they're asking him about divorce. And he says, Moses allowed you to divorce your wife because he recognized that your hearts were hard and you were going to make mistakes and you needed that. But from the beginning, it wasn't so. He points right back to the creation and says, God made you for this. 
In other words, he says all these laws and these moral codes that exist are there to constrain you and limit the damage you can do. The ideal to which you are supposed to live. And we miss that. Because we miss the importance of being the image of God in the world. We are called to worship and to procreate and to uphold the responsibility of caring for God's good creation and reflecting his stewardship into the world, both for the created order and for each other. You see it right from the beginning, right? He, he makes them to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the creatures of the land. That's right there, in there. It is our purpose to be God's regents in the world he made. And so when we mess up, we are quite literally severing the connection between God and the rest of the world. It's why sin affects more than just us. And what it really means, by the way, is that, that sin is not about violating a moral code. Sin is about not actually living up to our vocation as God's image bearers in the world. This is why God will always tell the people of Israel in the Old Testament, be holy for I am holy. You can't bear the image of God if you're not holy. And if you're not bearing the image of God, you're not actually being fully human. When we sin, we are quite literally being less than fully human. That's why it matters. And, and what's really happening, by the way, when we commit sin is we are actually embracing one form of idolatry or another. All sin boils down to some kind of idolatry. And what happens when we are committing idolatry is we are, instead of worshiping the creator, we're worshiping something else. And when we do that, we take the power and the authority that God has given us over creation and we surrender it to something else. And it's always one of the same three things, by the way. Idolatry is always the worship of money, sex, or power. Or some combination of the three. Every time. You see that in the Bible, by the way. You'll notice as you, as you read through the Bible this year, God talks about money, sex, and power a lot. Quite a bit. On every page, just about. Almost every sentence. It's there. And, and so you see then that the rules that are put out in the Old Testament and, and the instructions that are given are, are to put constraints on how much we can embrace those things. Because God knows that what's happening is we're, we're worshiping those things and we are therefore surrendering our power, our authority over his creation to these inhuman forces that wreak havoc. And Do you see how? how this then filters out into all the rest of Christian teaching and theology. This is why Christians have specific sexual ethics. This is why we have ethics about what we do with money. It's why we have instructions for what we do with power. It's why, by the way, Christians have historically been people who confront those in power. Because we recognize the need to limit the damage and to return ourselves to the worship of a God who made us. Ultimately, sin is the refusal on our part to actually live out God's purposes in the world. And the problem is, death is the inevitable result of that. You'll see in the New Testament that sin and death are always linked. They will always talk about how Jesus saves us from sin and death. There's never one without the other. The two are connected because it is the inevitable result of sin. 
And we misread this quite often as saying, when you sin, God squashes you like a bug. Right? God zaps you with a bolt of lightning, you're done. And we do that through the Old Testament as well. We, we misread it as saying God is intentionally punishing and intentionally torturing and intentionally causing bad things to happen. And there are a few isolated times when God actually intervenes in the way, in that way. But, but most of the time what's actually happening is people are experiencing the natural and inevitable consequences of turning over their authority and creation to the forces of money and sex and power and greed. They are experiencing the natural and inevitable consequences of their own sin. It's very much like if I'm walking down the street and I trip, I'm going to fall. It's not so much that God is sitting there going, I'm going to squash you like a bug because you did the wrong thing. It's this is what happens when you do the wrong thing. Because creation is designed to work in a certain way and you have a particular role to play in that. And when you abandon it, you can't then be surprised when bad things happen and things don't work the way they're supposed to. And this is all why God has to come back and rescue us. Ultimately, the, the original sin that is introduced a couple of chapters after this is an abandonment of our vocation as the image bearers of God. It's people who, who saw God's good purpose for them and turned away from it and gave it up, said, I don't want to do that. And it launches this sort of chain of dominoes falling. And you're going to have a really hard time understanding the rest of Scripture and understanding a lot of things about Christianity if you don't first grasp the importance of being made in the image of God and having that particular role to fulfill within God's creation. It's even why the resurrection matters and why, why we have to pay attention to what happens in the New Testament because God doesn't just save us from sin and catapult us off somewhere in the clouds. The New Testament is very clear that God saves us from sin for the world so that we can bring his kingdom here. As we'll see at the end of the year, the book of Revelation ends not with everyone being saved from earth and going up, up into the clouds and earth going away, but actually with heaven coming down to earth and the two being joined together and God's people living forever as his royal priesthood, as his image bearers in his creation. That's how the Bible ends. And all these crazy end times cults get it wrong because they missed the part right in the beginning about being made in the image of God and being placed in the midst of creation to be God's representative here, to bring his order and his wisdom to the place he built. It all starts here. We are made in the image of God. Even, do you notice, by the way, he says, let us make them in our image. It's the first hint we have in the scripture of the existence of the Trinity. And we are therefore made in the image of the triune God. This has implications for what we believe about marriage and families as well, about why we are called to live in certain ways, because we're made in the image of a triune God. If you want to know more about that, you'll have to come to Bible studies. Because um, I can't go into all that here. There's just too much. But you see how rich this is. I could literally spend weeks preaching on just this one chapter, and I've done it before. Lucky you, I'm not doing it now. We miss it all. We miss it all if we try and sit there and figure out if this is history or not. It doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. That's not the point. The point is that being made in the image of God, understanding what that means, and understanding the implications it has 
for our lives is an interpretive key to the entire Bible. And as you read through the rest of this, you have to read it from that point of view of how exactly does being made in the image of God and abandoning that vocation affect the rest of this. When you read through the book of Leviticus and you read all the laws that are put in there, you have to understand that those are there to, to limit the damage caused by abandoning our point of existence in the first place. It helps you understand everything else and you'll miss a lot if you forget about it. So we are made in the image of God. And your job this week is to actually sit and think about what exactly that means in your life. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.